Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Bob Martin will join us to discuss how we do it. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, despite our society's never-ending fascination with sex and reproduction, I think it's fair to say that a great deal of us are still fumbling in the dark about a few things. Well, joining us today to shed some light on this issue is Dr. Bob Martin. He's the A. Watson Armour III Curator of Biological Anthropology at the Field Museum in Chicago, and he has penned the new book, How We Do It, The Evolution and Future of Human Reproduction. And Dr. Martin, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. I'm glad to join you. All right. Well, why did you decide to write this book? Well, you know, when I did my PhD thesis uh, over 40 years ago, I already had the idea of trying to make use of my understanding of reproduction in mammals to interpret human reproduction. And I've been carrying that idea around with me. But what really uh, sparked me to actually do something was a student who came up after a lecture series I gave on primate evolution. And he said, I really enjoyed your lectures, but what's the point? And so I thought it would be nice to write a book to show the point of of what I've been doing throughout my career. It is a a good question. So what is the point? (laughs) (laughs) What I was hoping was to be able to uh, draw interesting lessons from humans by looking across primates and other mammals. So the key to my approach is comparative biology, that by looking across mammals in general and primates in particular, uh, I wanted to recognize general principles that we could then confidently apply to humans. So how much of what humans do is really preserved across various animal species? Well, in fact, uh, there are uh, enormous numbers of features that have accumulated in the process of evolution, and and sexual reproduction goes back a a long way, hundreds of millions of years into the past. That's when it all started. And when vertebrates evolved animals with backbones, then new characters were developed, and when vertebrates moved to dry land, certain characters like internal fertilization occurred because they were no longer living in water. They had to find a different way of making sure the sperms got to the eggs. And then with the ancestor of mammals, suckling came in, the mother providing milk for for the offspring. And with the uh, ancestor of primates, various other things came in. All primates have a slow reproductive history, and this applies to humans in a, a fairly extreme form. But it's a primate characteristic to breed slowly and to emphasize quality rather than quantity. One of, one of the issues, of course, is the fact that locked very early on into this mode of sexual reproduction uh, that really allows for diversity that, that exists among um, all animals. 
Yes, the, uh, one of the key questions is, is why you have sexual reproduction at all, and it really starts from there. And uh, this has been a key issue in evolutionary biology as to why uh, sexual reproduction begins, because if you look at it coldly, it would seem to make a lot more sense simply to clone yourself. And it looks as though sexual reproduction is needed to provide variability. So there, there's a, been a strong selection pressure for re, uh, sexual reproduction in that, but there are hugely different adaptations across biology depending on, on what evolutionary pressures individual species have encountered. Uh, there is sort of an interesting issue, though. The male really has to produce a lot of sperm, whereas there's only one egg that needs to be fertilized. Why is this sort of asymmetry? Yes, this is another case, uh, just like sexual reproduction itself. In most cases, you have males that, by definition, produce large numbers of small sperm, and you have females that produce much fewer eggs, which are generally large to very large, and that asymmetry, as you correctly called it, has arisen maybe many times, but most of the animals that we are familiar with have males and females with precisely those characters. But the starting point would have been single-cell organisms that fused together. That was the beginning of sexual reproduction, where two single cells of the same size would fuse together. And so the difference in size had to evolve. And this hasn't really been solved. I don't think we can say with confidence that we know why this happened. But uh, it seems likely that with our fish-like ancestors way back in the past, with the earliest uh, animals with backbones, they lived in water. And uh, it probably wouldn't work for males and females to produce small sex cells of the same size. It, it's probably much better to have one sex producing a large uh, egg as a target and for the male uh, to produce lots and lots of little sperm. If both sexes produce lots and lots of little sex cells, they probably would never meet up in an aquatic environment. It's really inherited from our um, aquatic ancestry. Well, that's right. I mean, this is one of the features that we have retained from that uh, water-living origin that at some point animals with backbones moved on to try land and they had to adapt in various ways, but they kept some of those adaptations which were really developed for living in water. So humans seem to be able to procreate at relatively any time during the year, but uh, other animals tend to have mating seasons. Is there a reason why humans are more fecund throughout the year? You know, there are tremendous, there's tremendous variability between mammals and between primates in this. The, all of the lemurs of Madagascar, or most of them, breed in a very short space of time, uh, just a, a few weeks in many cases. So for the rest of the year, the animals are not sexually active at all. And, uh, that's one extreme where you have this really sharp breeding season. And then at the other extreme, you have animals such as ourselves that breed right through the year. But even in humans, there is a peak. So uh, we don't breed at the same rate throughout the year. There is a peak and a trough, and uh, you have to go back far enough uh, to when society wasn't so affected by artificial light and so forth. But at one stage in Europe, it was absolutely characteristic to have a birth peak in spring and a corresponding trough in, in fall. That was the 
the way it worked. We can still see this uh, in humans. Practically every human population you look at today still shows some seasonal variation in, in at the birth rate. Uh, even in uh, parts of the globe where the seasons are so pronounced, say equatorial regions as well? Uh, that's a very good point because day length, uh, day length is really the, the key to this. Is uh, One of the things I discuss in my book is that many people have tried to link human breeding seasons to directly to environmental influences such as temperature and rainfall particularly. But uh, I think that what's really uh, at work here is an internal clock, an annual clock that uh, is triggered by day length. Mammals that show a, a breeding season commonly use day length to determine what time of the year it is. And day length variation around the year increases as you move away from the uh, equator. And at the equator, it, it's uh, very, very limited, and so it's very difficult to use day lengths to time the breeding season on the equator. And that's what we see with humans, is the further you move away from the equator, the more pronounced the breeding season is. And close to the equator or on the equator, the, the breeding season is, is much less obvious. For humans, certainly um, one of the key points for uh, reproduction is finding a mate. This is another very good question. One of the problems uh, in discussing human evolution, particularly where behavior is concerned, is that uh, we have very large brains and we have become very flexible. And culture has had such a big influence that we cannot easily see what what factors are at work. So, <clears throat> One of the key questions is, do humans have some kind of biological basis for their mating arrangements? And for some reason, uh, uh, many people uh, today are taking for granted uh, that humans have some kind of basic promiscuity. Uh, in mammals that are promiscuous in breeding, uh, you get what is being called sperm competition. That is, sperm from uh, two or more males can be present at the same time in the female tract and are in competition with one another. And it's been suggested that uh, humans are adapted for that. But uh, if you look at the biological evidence, uh, that isn't the case at all. There's a very nice contrast here between chimpanzees which clearly are adapted for sperm competition and humans. Uh, a male chimpanzee has very large testes, which are about the size of a large chicken's egg, and they produce far more sperm than, than humans do. They have a, a short muscular duct uh, to carry the, the sperm to the, uh, to the female's tract and so on, and the female has adaptations too. Uh, the ch female chimpanzee has a long overduct uh, as a bigger arena for sperm competition to take place. And you can even see it in the, in the sperms themselves. Uh, uh, the middle part of a, uh, a sperm carries mitochondria, which are the kind of the motor, the energy pack for the sperm. And in males that have intense sperm competition, you find a big midpiece because the sperm need a big energy pack for the competitive environment. And if you look at humans, we contrast in every single respect with chimpanzees. Another feature that chimpanzees have is that the, the male semen forms a plug after copulation, so you get an actual vaginal plug. 
which is a physical barrier to any other male that mates with the female soon afterwards. Uh, human beings don't form a, a vaginal plug. Uh, and so we lack all of the features that I would expect as a biologist if humans were adapted from a, for a promiscuous mating relationship. I'm convinced the evidence tells us that basically we're adapted for a one male arrangement. It's more difficult to tell whether that would be monogamy or a kind of harem arrangement, but effectively most people around the world are monogamous. Uh, are there other primates that also show similar biological adaptation? Uh, the, the evidence across primates is actually very consistent. Um, if you look for signs of, of sperm competition or lack of it, uh, some primates, there are a minority, about 15% of primates are, are monogamous. They, they live in pairs with a single adult male and a single adult female and, and their offspring. And they have small testes and, and they have all of the characteristics I just described for humans. Whereas if you look at primates that live in what are called multi-male groups where you have several adult males together and where you have a competitive situation, then you find the features of, uh, for sperm competition. Rhesus monkeys are another example. A rhesus monkey is much smaller than a human. Uh, we're talking about uh, eight or nine pounds, and yet the testes of a rhesus monkey are the same size as human testes. So these, uh, these guys have really big testes for their body size. Uh, one of the other interesting features of humans is the bipedal standing up. This has put constraints on the birth canal and expansion of head to um, accommodate our larger brains. Yes, one of the key features in humans is the challenging nature of, of birth. Uh, it, it, it lasts for several hours typically, and in a monkey or an ape, uh, birth takes a maximum of two hours usually, and usually much less than that. Uh, and so humans have these long, drawn-out births, which, which are characteristically pretty painful. And this is a result of two things happening. One is that our brain size increased. We have a brain three times bigger than the brain of a chimpanzee. And as our brain size increased, uh, that increased the size of the brain at birth uh, automatically. And the second problem, which you mentioned, is walking upright or being bipedal. Uh, that led to changes in the structure of the pelvis, and that makes it, it places a constraint on what you can do with the pelvis uh, to facilitate birth, because the pelvis is, is primarily there for walking. And so there's a limit to how the pelvic shape can be changed to facilitate birth. There is a difference between men and women in pelvic shape, and this is the easiest thing to use if you find a, a skeleton and you want to know whether it's male or female. The answer is to look at the pelvis first. But females then do have somewhat different pelvis, but there's a huge constraint. And so this large brain baby has to negotiate its way through a relatively tight pelvic canal. And humans are quite unique in this respect because uh, we push this to the limit in, uh, with respect to giving birth to a baby. The baby's head has to be turned to face to one side as it goes to the pelvis because the entrance into the pelvic canal is widest from side to side. 
And then as the baby's head goes through the pelvis, it has to rotate another 90 degrees so that it's actually facing backwards for birth rather than forwards as in other primates uh, because the exit from the pelvic canal is, is widest from front to back. And so we have this uh, complicated rotation with the head eventually rotating through 180 degrees to face backwards by birth. So our babies uh, really only just fit through that pelvic canal. Once we do give birth to the, the baby, comes the issue of taking care of the baby. Uh, a lot of adaptations that have gone on for rearing a child, especially among humans, because of the long period of post-birth uh, maturation. Right, there are some unique things about development after birth. For example, childhood seems to be unique to humans. If you look at other primates, generally you would talk about infants, juveniles, and adults. And what has happened is that in humans, uh, and this is probably connected with brain size because this is a general rule in, in primates, is when life histories are more drawn out, brain size tends to be larger. I'm sure there's some connection between these two things. So our big brains go along with very drawn out development. And there are actually two phases that are pretty unique to humans. First of all, we have childhood between the infant stage and the juvenile stage. And then we have adolescence, uh, which is a, another new addition. So we have a very complex developmental pathway. But the key to all of uh, development really in mammals is, is suckling the fact that the mother produces milk to raise the offspring. And, and this is a wonderful example where you can look at biological principles and, and see uh, how we were adapted because there's been a lot of nonsense written over the decades about how women should raise their babies and whether they should suckle them on a fixed schedule or when the baby wants to feed and so on. And uh, these are, in most cases, it's been male physicians telling women what to do with no relevance whatsoever to the basic biology. One final issue that you cover in the book here is that for the most part, much of human evolution has gone through natural selection, but now we are sort of in the power or a position to guide our own evolution by, by manipulating our, our own reproduction in various ways. What do you think this implies for the future of human reproduction? You know, it's an interesting point because whenever I give a talk about primate evolution or specifically about human evolution, uh, it's almost guaranteed that during question time, at least one person will ask, well, what lessons can we learn for the future? And it's really quite difficult to predict what the future will hold because uh, natural selection uh, has an awful lot of chance in it. So it really depends on how the environment changes in the future and and so forth. So it's it's not easy to predict, but I think one thing is pretty clear that some of the things we're doing to our own reproduction are likely to build up problems for the future. And the example I, I would really like to take here is, is cesarean section, because we've already talked about the constraint of the pelvis during birth. And cesarean sections are becoming more and more common uh, in the United States now, one in three births are done by cesarean. In parts of Asia, it's up to 50% of births 
there because there are propitious birthdays and people are pushing to have their babies born on particular days. Uh, that seems to be a major factor. And recently I read a report that in South Africa in private clinics, the rate of cesarean has got up to 70%, so close to three quarters of births are by cesarean section. And basically what you're doing if you, if you conduct a cesarean and do not allow normal vaginal birth, you're removing the pelvic constraint. And so the selection that is normally there to keep babies' head sizes within a certain limit disappears. And the thing that frightens me is if you look at various dog breeds, there are certain dog breeds now where you have 80 to 90% cesareans to, to have the babies born. This is particularly true of broad-headed breeds, uh, the Bulldog and the French Bulldog, for example. Both of those breeds, most of the births now have to be done by veterinarian, by cesarean. And I wonder whether we're heading in that direction that eventually, uh, if we allow this trend to continue too much, it may be almost essential to have cesareans to give birth. Essentially, will be a race of very large-headed primates. <laughs> I, well, the the thing is that this might actually allow brain size to increase because people like to think that our brains are going to get bigger and bigger over time. And in fact, for the last thirty thousand years, it's gone the other way. Thirty thousand years ago, Cro-Magnon ancestors of modern humans had brains ten percent bigger than they are today. And this connected with body size. Our body sizes became, our bodies became more gracile, less massive, and our brain size decreased accordingly. So I'm not convinced that our brains are just going to get bigger like that. But at least if if you remove the constraint of the pelvis, brains could get bigger in the future. All right. Well, it does look like we are out of time. Uh, just the, the book is called How We Do It, The Evolution and Future of Human Reproduction. And our author did, uh, and the, uh, our guest today was uh, Dr. Bob Martin. And uh, Dr. Martin, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.